Phantomaniacs, welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and this week has been something else, you guys. Okay, so for the past couple of months, you know that I've been working on our our portion of Five-Fifths of the Princess Bride. This was a live performance of the Princess Bride for the Atlanta Fringe Festival, Uh, I was working with my pal, Mr. Bo Brown, and uh, a colleague of his who perhaps should remain nameless, uh, not for any reason other than he he was doing this purely as a favor and as an enjoyable endeavor and is not seeking any credit for it whatsoever. But uh, so Mr. Bo Brown wanted me to play a large human Andre the Giant against various forms of puppetry acting out uh, the last about 20 minutes of The Princess Bride. Now, obviously not the whole thing through and through. It would just be highlights. We'd pick out the funniest or most dramatic or most entertaining bits and kind of make a little show out of them, which we did. I think we were hugely successful. Uh, There were four other acts, obviously. It's called Five-Fifths of The Princess Bride, uh, ranging from drag burlesque to... Uh, a, a gay comedy troupe to a lady who's absolutely wonderful, and I hate it. Her name escapes me uh, escapes me right now. I have seen her perform before, I think at one of the uh, Puck and Fuppet shows. She was mind-blowing. She was definitely the main, main event as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then Crazy Sexy Cool, a people of color improv comedy troupe. And then finally, myself, Mr. Bo Brown, and our partner. And I'd like to say we were the last ones, and we we brought it home. The show ended on a very, very strong note. We delivered the funny. Uh, I'm very proud of myself for my performance. For uh, it, you know, Andre the Giant has a very specific way of speaking and delivery, and it would be very easy to. Uh, rather than picking up on his deep giant voice and his French accent to to kind of ease over into maybe more of a simple minded kind of thing and uh, I like to think I, I I stuck to the tone of Fezzik fairly well uh, but we were great we had an amazing time we were treated very well uh, everybody was nice it, it was just amazing and if you weren't there I'm sorry uh, I do actually have video of the entire performance, but uh, I'm not going to put it up because you should have been there. And there you go. Uh, so that was absolutely outstanding, amazing, and wonderful. And then last night, after I got home from work, I talked to the delightful Dan Kozu, who is a writer for The Hard Times, uh, among many, many other things, and who has a new novel out called Lingeria, book one of one, which you can find on Amazon right now. Uh, It's either a digital copy or print. Uh, I recommend it. It is a humorous, 
I don't I don't know how to describe it, but it's okay. I don't need to know how to describe it because Dan is on the show today, and we have a great conversation about writing, about pop culture, about movies, uh, about all kinds of stuff. You know how we do here on the show. An interview is not just an interview. It's an exploration of the world. Uh, but Dan, Dan was great. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I, and I actually hope that uh, we'll be able to get him back on at some point for one of our roundtable shows uh, because he's he's got uh, – uh, that fella seems to have some fine taste. Uh, so anyway, that's coming up in a minute, and you will enjoy that interview. Before we get to that, ladies and gentlemen, I have a contest. Now, uh, originally, I had my own contest, but I'm going to put that on the back burner because we have a much bigger and more important contest that we're going to talk about right now. This is a contest where you can win a thing. You can win an actual, uh, a, a free, cool, awesome thing. So listen up, slap nuts. Uh, our friend of the show, Bobby Nash, award-winning Bobby Nash, has just released the audio edition of the Snow Series uh, 1, Volume 1. And this is a big deal because this is our pal Bobby, and he's he's in the audiobook business now. So you can you can get his books, and you can play them in the car, listen to them on the way to work, listen to them while you're working in the office. Uh, it's it's a great way to read if you like me no longer really have the time to read. Uh, so the the entire audio edition of Volume One of Series One of the Snow uh, the Snow Series is now available and what i would like to do is give you a copy just give it to you free digital download uh to one of you lucky people now here is what we're gonna do i need you to go on to twitter now i know i don't enjoy twitter i don't like twitter but it seems to be the best way to handle podcast contests because they're easy way to pick uh, easy ways to pick winners, easy ways to find your contestants. Uh, it's just sadly the most functional social media platform for this sort of business. So what I need you to do is get on Twitter. If you don't have a Twitter account, uh, then just write me a letter. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everybody has a Twitter account, uh, and you will have the opportunity. To win a novella collection by Bobby Nash, half an inch is all that stands between life and death. Abraham Snow, former undercover agent turned do-gooder, helps those in need while searching for the man who shot and left him for dead. Snow, Series 1, Volume 1, collects the first three snow stories, Snow Falls, Snow Storm, and Snow Drive, together for the first time. Snow Falls. After a near-fatal encounter while deep undercover in South America, Abraham Snow retires from his work as a government operative and returns home to re-enter his life. Things don't go as smooth as he hoped, and soon Snow finds himself reunited with old friends and in the crosshairs of a hired assassin. Snow Storm. Snow's former partner, Samson Brooks, a retired agent turned P.I., arrives in Atlanta with a problem. He's gotten into some trouble with some bad people and needs Snow's help to get out of it. If they can't rescue a kidnapped college student, the underworld erupts into all-out war. 
And finally, Snow Drive, 2018 Pulp Factory Award nominee, Best Novel. Danger at 220 miles per hour. The Chambers Stock Car Racing Team hires Snow Security Consulting to stop a saboteur before their next race becomes their last. Can they keep the team's young hothead out of trouble long enough to stop the saboteur before the next race? Meanwhile, an old enemy sets her sights on Snow when a bounty is placed on his head. Ben Books presents Snow Series 1 Volume 1 featuring three action-packed stories from award-winning author Bobby Nash. All right, so you can win all three of those stories. All you have to do is go on Twitter, uh, tweet Needless Things Podcast underscore, and yeah, or I'm sorry, it's Needless Things underscore. See, that's how often I use Twitter. What a lame-o I am. Uh, needless things underscore at needless things underscore and you're going to hashtag phantom snow stories that's hashtag phantom snow stories to at needless things underscore i hope you're following the needless things podcast on twitter if you're not get on there and do it and that's all you got to do is uh this will last uh you have until June 12th, let's say. June 12th, June 11th. No, we're going to say June, midnight on June 10th. Boy, I really planned this out well, didn't I? You've got until midnight on June 10th to go to at needless things underscore and uh, hashtag phantom snow stories. And we will pick a winner, and Mr. Bobby Nash himself will announce the winner uh, live pre-recorded on next week's Needless Things podcast. So, uh, awesome contest. I'm very excited to have that be part of the show. Uh, it's it's Writer Palooza this week between the award-winning Bobby Nash and the delightful Dan Kozu. Uh, what a great time we're having here with creative, awesome people. So now it's time to listen to a little bit of music. And after that, we're going to talk to Dan and have a great time. And you're going to dig it. special guest this week on the Needless Things podcast, and I'm going to do something that I haven't done in a while, but I'm a little loopy today, and I, f- I feel like I'm in the need uh, for a little bit of a icebreaker here. So we're going to start off with a question, uh, but before we do, I want to welcome to the podcast, Dan... Oh, shit. <laughs> Hang on. Dan, oh shit, welcome to the show. Let's try that again. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's pronounced Kozu, not oh shit. I, I can see the phonetic. <laughs> see, I told you know what, I'm just gonna leave that. That's perfect. We're gonna we're gonna start with that. And now everybody understands <laughs> why I'm like beginning this with a basic bitch question instead of my normal just going into stuff. So, Dan, here is your basic bitch question to break the ice and start the show. Favorite toy or toy line when you were a kid? 
Ooh, um, I had a huge collection of micro machines. That's what I remember collecting. Oh, nice! Now that's uh, that's one we've not yeah. heard on the show before. It's weird. My friends all had He-Man and and Transformers. For some reason, I don't. I didn't get those. I, we didn't have a whole like. I didn't have a lot of toys, but I got really into micro machines. But the weird thing was, I kept them in a trash bag for some reason. I can't remember why. But my dad threw them out. Not like angrily, like he didn't he didn't realize what he was doing, <laughs> and it devastated me. And that like I told like that's what a vivid childhood memory oh. is my micro machines getting thrown out by accident, and he felt awful about it. But I never like tried to recollect them or anything. I did; they were just gone. It's interesting you bring those up though, because I was, you know, I had Hot Wheels when I was a kid, just because my my dad was a big car guy. He grew up working on cars on his dad's car lot. So I had tons of Hot Wheels, but I was never that interested in them. But for some reason, when Micro Machines hit, those seemed really cool to me. Yeah, I was the same way. I didn't collect uh, Hot Wheels either, but Micro Machines were so unique. Like, because they, I mean, they you could get like like army versions and Land Rovers. They were much more creative. I think. I think that might have been why I drifted towards them. They were just very unique. Uh, yeah, they did. In in a way, they were a little cooler looking than hot wheels like as far as the deco and the style of them and they were the you know it was, a, it was the same kind of thing but tinier but there was just something cooler about those little tiny cars yeah and then later on when they got into doing like the james bond cars and the indiana jones cars and like star wars stuff like they they branched out and it really became like one of the biggest brands of the the 80s and the 90s yeah, I, I kind of forgot the brand stuff. I did have a lot. I think I had a whole bunch of them. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's it's funny when something starts off. Because, you know, Lego did the same thing for, for decades. Lego was just straight up, here. here's your box of bricks, make your castle, <laughs> make your spaceship. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's Star Wars, and it's like a whole different thing. <laughs> Which is a Micro Machines, same way. Star Wars crept in. Uh, nobody can resist Star Wars, basically, yeah. is, is the merchandising rule. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, what we're going to talk about tonight, now that, we, now that we've gotten that little bit out of the way, uh, you have an actual, for real, published book, Lingeria, book one of one, which I really enjoy book one of one as the uh, sort of subtitle there. Right. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, I want to talk to you about the hassles, difficulties, and joys of having an online uh, writing existence, I guess. Because prior to being aware that you actually did have a published book, you've done things on several different websites, you do a lot of writing online, and I want to talk a little bit about that, and I want to know how you got started with writing in the first place, I would assume before you even really got online. Yeah, I have been... I honestly, when I... When I I didn't write like prose when I was young. I the first I, I didn't have the attention span for it. I didn't and I didn't have the confidence either. I didn't think I could. And I but as soon as I learned that there was something called screenwriting, which was probably like in like junior year of high school, which I knew screenwriters existed, but like the the kind of format of it is I wanted to be a screenwriter. Well, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, I, I went to film school and I, but I was going to be the writer director, the serious writer director talking about the the pains of life and and making serious art uh and so that's really where i started writing was was handwriting screenplays uh and that's what i kind of always thought i was going to do 
I, I didn't anticipate writing prose or comedy or anything like that uh, until probably like my until my thirties. Really, uh, I, I kind of always loved comedy, but never thought I would it would be something I would want, like really kind of focus on. Oh, and, that's uh, interesting because my my assumption from seeing your stuff was, was that this guy was probably funny when he was a kid. Like I, the the in my head, you were like entertaining the other kids, being the funny guy. No, I, re- I I'm really quiet typically. Like th- like doing these podcasts, I'm actually like pushing myself to to be more like open and and like kind of out put myself out there. Uh, sure, but I'm actually sure. very quiet. I've always been a very quiet kind of uh, uh, yeah, kind of just. I, I think I've always kind of enjoyed humor. I love. I've always loved to laugh. I love people making me laugh. I love like just joking around, and it's one. Of, I, I mean, laughter is one of my favorite things in the world, but. Uh, comedy wise, it was I like I and I. That's what I realized is that I would write these very serious, like awful screenplays, but I couldn't take them seriously. I couldn't take the characters I created seriously. Other characters would start making fun of them, and there was always like a, a line of humor. But I just I I took myself so seriously in film school that I I like and, and I have you ever seen the movie Sullivan's Travels? Mm, okay, who's in it? Okay. uh Veronica Lake. It's an older movie. It's an old uh, Billy Wilder, maybe Pre- maybe Preston Sturgis. I'm getting my my guys confused. Sure, sure. But uh, it's about a filmmaker who only wants to make serious films. He's going to go out during the depression and and learn the the pains of people. And and then like there there's a kind of the the whole idea is people want to laugh. And I'm like, well, maybe I need to stop taking myself so seriously. And then uh, I found the hard times which is what i mostly write for online uh is a punk music satire site the hard times and their their new site the hard drive uh that's what i really write for now so how did you make the connection well before we get to that uh sure if you you have always enjoyed comedy uh what were what are some of your earliest comedy memories were you reading like books by humorists or were you listening to comedy albums who were you getting into like when you were young and kind of first discovering that people just did comedy as a thing yeah I, that's the funny thing is i think like i was obsessed with mad magazine for like but oh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think i felt like that kind of grew out of the ground like there weren't people somewhere actually making these jokes it's just existed and <laughs> and it's being sent to me in the mail this, like, there can't be people who make a living off of this. And most of them probably didn't. They were probably all probably freelancers with day jobs like I do. But, uh, but yeah, Mad Magazine was, like, the first. And I was obsessed with it. I had the subscription, and I saved them all and, and put them in sleeves. I lost them all now. But uh, I loved Mad Magazine. And I don't know how, but my, my house had a tape of Eddie Murphy's Best of Saturday Night Live. And like I, I grew up in a very religious household, but for some reason we had this tape, and I wow, was that's, I just that's loved wildly it. out of place. Yeah, I, I assume it was my brother's that he probably left or something. I, I don't know how it worked, but I love and so I loved Eddie Murphy, and then and so I I found Raw and Delirious. Oh yeah, yeah, too young for me to understand what they were. Yeah, but they I mean just obsessed with them, and then. Uh, who, uh, who else? What other stand-up did I? I there was another. Eddie Murphy was my guy. I can't remember. I know Steve Martin. I loved like, but I think I discovered him a little late. Like his stand-up a little later. I loved his movies. But. I, you know, it's funny. I think most of us did I, I, because 
you know, if you saw any early Saturday Night Live, you saw a little bit of Steve Martin, but didn't maybe necessarily relate him to doing comedy because I think we mostly knew actor Steve Martin. Exactly. I yeah. didn't even see like his his stand up stuff or, or become aware of his stand up albums until, I mean, it might have been the nineties before I even really knew he did that stuff. Yeah, I probably it was probably late nineties for me too. I think you might be a little bit older than me, so we were probably hitting it about the same the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. But like uh, Louis Anderson, I like his stand up was one of the funny, and it was clean too, and it was it's just one of the funniest. His early stand-up is some of the funniest material you could ever. And I would, and then I was actually from your podcast last week remembering how obsessed I was with Weird Al. Oh yeah, uh, dude. I, I mean, uh, I, he shaped my childhood. I can't even like express like if I were to meet him to to tell him the influence he had on my childhood. I I, I don't think I'd even have the words for it. I uh, took my son last year. He did a tour um, that was him no costumes no set dressing nothing him just playing his original stuff with a few parodies sprinkled in here and there uh and i took my son to it and did just because you you never know when it's going to be your your last opportunity to do something and uh uh, so i was like you know what i'm going to go ahead and do the vip thing we're we're both wow. We're both gonna go backstage. We're gonna meet Al, uh, and and this will be for both of us a huge because my my son's first concert was Weird Al a, a few years ago. Uh, oh, that's great! And, yeah, yeah, and it was one of the big you know costume change deals. He had a great time, so mm-hmm. we went. We saw the show, uh, and then afterwards backstage, I was. At this point in my life, I've gotten pretty good at meeting people, like even when they're idols or famous people or whatever. Uh, Right. I I can, like, I interviewed Ric Flair last year and handled it, you know? Right. (laughs) But Weird Al, I mean, he raised me about as much as my dad raised me. Right. Just the, the status. So the whole night, I'm just like. What what am I going to say to this god? And we walk in, and I had worn one of my spectacularly tacky suits. Uh, so fortunately, that <laughs> saved me because I walked in, and he goes, Whoa, stop. Let me just take this in. Wow. Oh. Yeah. So he kind of br- broke the ice, so to speak. And, uh, right. He's like, "Where did you get that?" So I get, you know, I gave him the information for where the suit came from and everything, and we talked to him for a little bit, got the pictures, and I just, uh, you know, at that point, I was just like, "Thank you so much. You're absolutely incredible." And he was like, "That suit is incredible." And then we, <laughs> we you know, we went on our way. So it 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 worked out. It was fortunate. But I, if uh, you know, I, I was just, I didn't. What do you do, man? Somebody, yeah, big. I, and I, I, one of my, my, probably my most successful hard times article was about Weird Al and, and he liked it and shared it. And I, I mean, he didn't, he has no idea that I'm the one that wrote it. And it was still like, like him kissing me full on the lips. Like it oh, was yeah, just yeah. The, the best validation I could ever receive. I, similar to that, um, this one blew my mind and you, you've probably had this experience a few times, I would imagine, uh, beyond just the Weird Al one. Years ago, uh, Anthrax is my favorite metal band of all time. 
Uh, oh, one one of my favorite bands, but my for sure favorite metal band. Uh, same deal. We did the VIP experience for Anthrax because, again, you you don't know. This was just me and my wife. Um, <laughs> my son was a little too young for the metal show at the time. Uh, but okay, I, okay. On, on the Needless Things website, I had written a uh, uh, retro, retrospective article on my fandom of Anthrax. And uh, we get into the VIP room, or we're, we're in line for the VIP room, and the guy running the thing comes up and he's like, are you the wrestling mask guy? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, are you phantom something? And no. blew my mind. I was like, we, I, I am. And he was like, Joey can't wait to meet you. <gasps> I was like, are you fucking what? What are you talking about? And now retrospectively i realize joey belladonna probably has like a google alert for his name or something (laughs) it's it's not like he's reading my website on a daily basis and checking out my he-man toy reviews but uh (laughs) we get back into the back room and scott ian and rob caggiano are there at the table and uh I walk in and the the VIP guy is like this is the this is Phantom Troublemaker. And Scott Ian kind of doesn't react. And uh he's like where's Joey? He's always in the back. Okay, go get Joey. Joey walks out and he's like, "Whoa! What is happening, man?" And I was just like, "This is fucking insane." Wow. Joey Belladonna from Anthrax is delighted to see me. This is stupid. There's no like, would, oh crazy. my god! I'd be a puddle. I wouldn't even know what oh, to do, dude. It was it was nuts, and <sighs> the whole time though, like as enthusiastic as Joey is, Scott Ian is kind of standoffish. He's not being rude by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not as excited as Joey is. So we get pictures, and he's like, wait, are you going to get a picture with the mask on? I was like, of course I'm going to get a picture with the mask. Because I, I, back then I brought the mask everywhere because that, <laughs> that was my like public persona. So we get a picture with the mask, without the mask, with the wife, without the wife. We, everything, we're having a blast. All right, well, we got to go. Time for the next people to come in. Thank you so much. And he was like, you're going you're gonna to wear that mask during the show, right? And I hadn't planned to, but... When Joey Belladonna <laughs> wants you to wear your wrestling mask during the show, that's what you do. Yeah, obviously. So, uh, you know, we went up, had the mask on, go up front, and he's like pointing at me and making all these crazy mask gestures with his hands and rocking out. After the show, I'm kind of wondering, I'm like, what was the deal with Scott? And I realized that in my retrospective thing that i wrote i wrote about the years where john bush was singing for anthrax and how i didn't particularly care for those years joey wasn't in the band at that point but scotty and still was right <laughs> still plugging away <laughs> still trying to make anthrax music and old phantom dickhead just didn't like anthrax <laughs> at that point and, and you know i don't know that that's what the case was but having seen interviews and stuff with scott ian and seeing he's pretty gregarious and outgoing i i kind of suspect maybe that was that was a little bit of what was going on so have you have you had like other artists kind of find your stuff and and share it and be appreciative because you you have a whole different thing going on where you actually you actually have to use some creativity for what you do (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, every like, not a whole lot of like reaching out uh, from what I remember. The only from what I remember, Five Iron Frenzy, uh, who's who uh, as a Christian punk uh, yeah, growing yeah, yeah. up. Yeah, I was just. I mean, they were my favorite band. I saw that. Like, I literally started working for the company that booked them in the Chicagoland area so I could like meet them and give them water backstage. <laughs> and there's there, uh, I, I made, I just made some random, uh, uh, passing joke about them. And the, the one girl in the band texted me or not text, but like Facebook messaged me and was like, uh, and I, I had said something about all men in the, in like playing Scott or something. She's like, there was a girl in the band and I'm like, uh, I, I like, I didn't know uh, how to, it, like it was totally tongue in cheek. And she said, I love the article. And like, but it was like, that's how she started it. And, uh, and that would, that just made my day. Uh, but I'm trying to think that there, like, there's a lot of, a lot of people kind of share it and like, and like, uh, like well, the, it, but I mean, not. The site is, is huge. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, I don't want to say a social media juggernaut because that feels kind of reductive, but it is like, it pops up on Facebook constantly. It It is a phenomenon. If, if you love like metal and punk, it, you'll definitely know people that share their their stuff. And they, I mean, for how how uh, homegrown they are, they are. I mean, they don't own an off. There's no brick and mortar to them. They right. they work out of their bedrooms still, even though they have two million unique hits. Like, but I'm I'm just a, a, a contributor, so I like those guys meet like get reached out to. I I haven't, uh, but I probably I don't try and seek that out either. Uh, because I, I I'm just I I'm kind of awkward in person, and when I have to talk to people one on one, like we are right now, I'm trying my best. Uh, so, <laughs> well, it's tough, man. It's especially in this day and age. Uh, I I feel like genuine communication is is in a weird way. Even though we've you know we've got the internet, and and in theory it should be easier than ever. I I feel like it's almost more difficult now because we're not uh, we're not as connected by the same things as we used to be like in yes, the 100%. in in the 80s and in the 90s how old are you i'm i'm 43 okay i'm i'm uh, hitting 38 in a couple 30 months, okay so. okay so right right around the same yeah, same exactly. era in the late 80s and the early 90s like to a certain extent everybody was listening to the same music uh, or at least was very aware of the top 40. Like, yes. my mom knew who the big artists were at the time. Like, she knew who Sheryl Crow was. Uh, you know, now, I have no awareness of who that might be because everybody can kind of do their own thing. Like, you don't... there. There's no common awareness anymore, I feel like. Oh, I mean, even in the sub communities, like when I see the top ten metal like albums to come out at the end of the year, I'm like, I know four of these, maybe, right, and right, like it's insane, like the, how mass, like, and the, I think this many existed then, but they just couldn't get themselves out there. So like, the the like Philly metal community can now reach the world, and so one of their bands can have the, the top ten album of the year. Uh, through Pitchfork because of that, like, and which so, is awesome. Like, it's great for independent artists to basically not need record labels at all anymore. But it's also this weird thing where as a result of all of this, uh, specialized niche individual stuff, people aren't on the same wavelength like they used to be. Yeah. I, I think it feels like 
there was almost something that passed when when and I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but people who who did that was kind of, feels like the last kind of cultural touchstone that everybody either, even if you didn't watch it, you knew about. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that, but there's nothing to fill that void. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got. I guess you've got like the Marvel movies that are a, a fairly common experience because like even yeah, even my mom yeah. goes and sees all of those, but it's not it's not the same level of uh, you know with Game of Thrones it, it's it was almost like because it was such an odd thing for so many people to be into. Yeah, but, that's really true. Yeah, because it's this medieval thing, like it's it's a dramatic but it has dragons and it's uh, like it's such an unusual thing to have hooked so many different kinds of people because like I, I work in a relatively square environment but most of the people i work with were watching game of thrones it's right the, exactly yeah it's and, and also not only that the fact that it's on hbo it's not even on like nbc or whatever yeah you you have to make Next a then. more specific effort to see it that's really true, and I I felt that way. Like I lo- when Battlestar Galactica came back out, uh, like the, the the reboot came out, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it from like episode one because somebody had told me to watch it. Like I didn't realize I was going to love it, but then around like season two, everybody was watching it, and I'm I like it was one of those things where I'm like I don't understand this cultural phenomenon. Like I love it, I know why I love it, but I'm shocked everybody's talking about it right now. And it's it's one of those things where. Uh, gee, I guess I don't know the world as well as I thought I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Like people, and, and I guess that's kind of a good feeling. It's like when when that many different kinds of people like something that's genuinely cool, you're like, you know what? It, it is possible for us to to be on the same page about things. Like there, there's common ground yeah. out there. We just have to to talk about it and get into it. Like, did you did you hit this point? Re- like, this this happened to me recently, where like there was everything is it, it, culture so saturated right now, and not even in a bad way. But I was just like, I used to really try and stay up on things, like stay up on what what people re- like are really watching, especially like watching uh, like yeah. sci fi and anime and things like that. And I I just hit this breaking point where I'm like, I don't care anymore. Like, yeah. I'm just gonna watch what I want to watch. I, I'm going to go back and watch classic Doctor Who episodes because that's what I want to watch right now. I'm going to stop trying to keep up because I just can't. Yeah, I'm. I have definitely hit that wall, um, and, and a lot of it is just because there's so many different venues now, like Amazon and Hulu and Netflix, and then regular TV and cable TV and and whatever new streaming service is coming out of some big conglomerate's ass and they have one <laughs> show to try and hook everybody with like it there's just too much you you've got to you got to kind of pick and choose as a matter of fact the other night um my wife and I sat down to watch uh Nosferatu the new AMC show cuz what you know anything I, I don't even know that exists I literally I, have no idea that exists And dude how often does this happen where you see like something on Facebook or something on a website about such and such show renewed for fourth season, and you're like, I've never even heard of this show. Exactly. Yeah, one hundred percent. But uh, we we sat down to watch Nosferatu because in any horror or sci-fi, we'll give it a shot. And we got like twenty minutes in, and, and we both knew like this is not 
We just turned it off. We're like, we're not even going to try. There's too much other stuff. To, like you said, I'll say, matter of fact, I've actually got uh, Tom Baker's first like six stories on DVD because I've been going back nice. through those. <laughs> They're sitting on the floor right in front of me. <laughs> but yeah, I've got, you know, not only is there plenty of new stuff coming out, but there's older stuff that I still enjoy consuming too because to me, um, movies and TV that's, that's good is always worth revisiting. Like I'm, I'm not, you know, yeah. there's some stuff that's kind of one and done, but the stuff that I really love, I, I get something different out of it every time. Even if I don't necessarily like notice, Oh, that character does that. And I didn't even notice it the first time. Like as you get older and as you grow, you, you take things in, in different ways. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And you, you look, yeah, you do. And, and you especially apply, I don't have any children, but I, I have a feeling that, uh, I, I think I watched Freaks and Geeks. Maybe I can't remember what it was. I rewatched recently, and I was connecting more with the adults. Oh yeah, I, like with the adult subplot. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, Let's go back to that instead of the the kid the that I that I connected with when I was young. And uh, it's really interesting to kind of look at it through that lens again. Yeah, it's funny. Like going back to to all the uh, '80s child endangerment movies that we loved so much, <laughs> like The Goonies. You know, watching them as a kid, you're like, these kids are awesome. And as a parent, I watch them and I'm like, these kids are in trouble. This is dangerous. <laughs> but uh, DCFS should really be notified about this. Absolutely. Uh, but but also, you know, one of the cool things is having my son's 11 years old now and, you know, getting to experience some of this stuff sort of through his eyes. And the fascinating mm-hmm. thing is, you know, I've been taking in media for 43 years now very rarely does a movie do something that surprises me because i've seen it all i've seen every kind of you know nothing is new anymore and so like all the twists and turns you know every once in a while something happened you know i'm not trying to say i'm some kind of super movie genius but if you've been watching movies for 20 years as a fan of movies you pick up the beats you know what i mean and I can't remember exactly what movie it was. This was this was like a year or so ago, but we're sitting there watching the movie and it hit me. I was I was like he doesn't know what's going to happen because he hasn't seen 50 movies exactly like this one. <laughs> like this is like an exciting revelation. He doesn't know that the the guy's actually about to come back when you think he just died. He doesn't know that oh that's actually going to be his sister. Like it it's it's really fun to to get to see somebody taking stuff in with fresh eyes which is one of the reasons i enjoy introducing movies and tv shows and stuff to people uh yeah yeah have have you got like any passion shows or or movies or anything that you're always kind of eager to be like oh you got to check this out i i own close to 1700 dvds so i i've got a couple like to uh but yeah, I I'm trying to think of what I really go like gravitate towards. Like you got to watch this. Like you really and um, there I I think I'm going kind of back and forth. But the prisoner, the 1960s BBC oh, show, yes, uh, is is one of my favorites that I that people kind of like. Yeah, I kind of I know the Simpsons episode that makes fun of it, and I kind of know the. But I'm like, no, you really got to see. It's like it's only 18 episodes, and it ends, and you like yeah. that's one I really champion and. Uh, uh, well, it came to, on. It like, came I, on. I, honestly, my mind's like, um, what's that? It came on Saturday nights. It was either before or after Doctor Who. I can't remember what it was, but it was on PBS here. Did you grow up around here? Did you, you mentioned Chicago. 
I grew up in yeah, I grew up in the uh, West Chicago suburbs. Okay, okay. So here in Atlanta, Doctor Who aired uh, Saturday nights at eleven thirty, eleven or eleven thirty on PBS. And the prisoner, it had to come on before it because I, I don't think there's any way I would have stayed up after Doctor Who was over. Um, <laughs> and that's that's how I was as a kid. I was watching the prisoner, and it didn't, I didn't understand it. Obviously, I had no idea what was I happening. Still don't understand it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But it was cool. It's just so cool visually, yeah. and and it's almost a different type of acting than what we have now. Like it's this very yeah, it interesting, is. like standoffish but suave i don't know how to describe it yeah it's because it's almost like james bond but with if he wasn't like if he wasn't trying to like kind of i i can't even explain it It, it's almost like a (laughs) patrick mcgoohan it was like his baby and so he kind of invented this and it's so confusing because that's what i kind of love about it is you don't know what is kind of production error and what is intentional (laughs) and what is just bad writing and like it and so you kind of have to put it together in your own head and make sense of it yourself it's almost like a bond who is at the end of the road and maybe yes. is a little self-aware. Yeah, exactly. Self-aware and just and and realize that he may like maybe he was working for the wrong team, perhaps, yeah. or maybe both teams are the same and like just burned out. Yeah, and you you're right. You're right. There is very much a sense of there are no good guys in that world. Yes, exactly. And he knows he's definitely not one of the good guys, but he also knows he wants <laughs> to get off that fucking island. Right. And he like turns on the charm when he needs to, but he really doesn't want to use it anymore. And yeah, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. The prisoner is definitely worth it's, it's not very few things. Will I say, Oh, you're definitely totally going to like this, but it's, it's worth giving a shot (laughs) for sure. Yeah. Uh, I used to be obsessed with David Lynch. And so I would, I would really push that on people. I I've kind of backed off now. I actually was kind of unhappy with the last season of twin peaks. Uh, and, but I, am still a fan of a lot of his work. And so I used to really push him on, like, you really got to check him out, but I'm, a, I'm actually huge on John Huston. Uh, his movies are kind of, I, I mean, like five of his movies are probably in my top five movies of all time. I just, I'm, i kind of love that he's sort of the anti Artur. All of his movies are different. They all kind of serve themselves. They're not, it's not his vision. Right. It's kind of like. How every Wes Anderson movie is very Wes Anderson. His are very different, and I just I love his his way of kind of communicating. Oh, that's very interesting. What? Okay, I know the name, but you're going to have to throw me a title. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, the Maltese Falcon is his kind of most like the most famous movie okay, that he directed. Okay. And that was only his second movie he ever made. Uh, but like the the man who would be king, uh, Wise Blood, Fat City. Uh, he has more fame. Uh, Pritzi's Honor. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. With uh, Nicholson, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's interesting. That I because I love filmmakers whose work is immediately recognizable as theirs, but I also have a lot of respect for people who are very selfless with telling a story. Yeah, I yeah, I think that's exactly that's a good word for it. Is selfless is the way he he kind of, I mean, he puts him. He's an actor in almost all of it, like a lot of his movies. So I guess he's not selfless because he likes to be in them. But uh, 
Oh, what's the one? Uh, Treasure Sierra Madre, uh, where I think his dad his dad was in. Oh, uh, wow. Okay, that's one of my dad's favorite movies. That's, uh, so he's just, I've, I think I've seen almost all of his movies. It's like 30-some, and, and I really suggest his movies. And then I'm uh, big into Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki's films. I, I'm trying to get my 15-year-old niece to really, uh, I'm like, you should watch this this cartoon well i guess she's a little older now so i already made her watch them but uh when she was younger but uh and uh i i think she loved the cat returns uh spirited away was a little much for her to handle i think she was a little young when i showed it to her at the time you know it's it's thinking about the older directors like those guys worked like crazy didn't they because thinking about somebody who has 30 movies like how many of our right? modern day big name directors even have ten? Yeah, and and ten quality movies. Like it's right, right. And, I mean, this had had some duds. He did a version of Moby Dick that is just pretty unwatchable. But uh, but yeah, I, I and he his career. I mean, he spanned from. I mean, uh, uh, Maltese Falcon was must have been fifties, right? Maybe early 50s i don't know and that then his last about... movie was in in, in the 80s it, he directed from a wheelchair while he was dying of cancer like it was wow. it's just and his he has a, a, a autobiography called open book that's just amazing and he's like he's everything i like he's everything of a man i wish i was right like right, he right. just fearless and like just didn't care but he also had like five wives so he didn't treat people the best i, I have a feeling and but i just well i think i, I mean, think dudes for the most part especially like accomplished dudes probably didn't right. back then right good point uh and like like he, he tells stories of like he directed the african queen with bogart and like how him and bogart only drank whiskey because the water was had dysentery like gave him dysentery <laughs> so and like i can't drink like more than two shots or else i'm throwing up like it's just right, right. such a different version of myself that i wish i was right that's awesome so with, with that uh little bit of pop culture background laid out <laughs> at, at what point did you really get passionate about writing I've always been passionate about storytelling. And so, uh, like I said, I wrote screenplays in high school. Like, that's kind of... And, and I, as soon as I found out movies, I became obsessed with them. And I think to a fault. Like, I kind of stopped experiencing life and just, like, focused on movies. And then kind of towards the end of college, I'm like, no, I, I should have been living and, and experiencing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, and I, I still... Even through film school, I was still like film. That's it, and I. It really was a confidence thing. I'm like, I, I have, I have a bad attention issue. I can't focus to write prose. I'm not good enough to write prose. Uh, and so screenplays, it's like they're not going to read this. They're just they, like the actors just need to say the words. But I would always be very descriptive in my scene descriptions because I, I, I'm like, I'm going to make this movie. I need to remember the kind of tone that I'm looking for. And so it was. So you're very much, like, very much as a writer, you're visualizing everything in your head. You're not just putting it together as something for people to act. You have a whole cohesive picture in your head. Yes, because it was either like I'm going to direct this, or somebody else is, and they should know kind of what I'm going for. What right. I'm oh, like, and, and like that's what everybody says is in your screenplays, don't do big, big scene descriptions, one paragraph. And I'm like, well, crap. And so I, I had been hired to write screenplays 
And when I did those, I did do very, like, I did it for them. And so I'm like, here's, like, very short. This isn't my movie. This is yours here. Like, and so I, I, I was able to kind of separate myself from it. But for my work, I, I did make it. They were very long and, and kind of very descriptive. I tried not to put too much. I didn't put a lot of inflection in the dialogue because I like working with actors. And I like being like, well, let's see where they're going to take it. Because that's one thing I actually really like doing is letting another person kind of interpret the way I'm doing because it, it opens you up and you're like, I never thought of it that way. And it can give you a whole new, I love playing. And I, I, I did improv in college and that was one of my favorite things was kind of getting out of my own head and, and just playing with a scene. And that's what I kind of love doing with, with actors as well is letting them take it where they want it. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's one thing that's very interesting about various kinds of storytelling is like some of it is so personal and so intense that it has to be done a certain way and some of it is very much a collaborative open experience that you, that you actually learn from and it sounds like you enjoy learning from from sort of uh, I I guess feeding other people a little bit and then seeing where they go with it. Yeah, totally. Like and cuz there were like people in, in film school and, and other filmmakers that I know who are like, oh, actors are just moving props. They do what I tell them. And I'm like, get over yourself. Like, your work <laughs> is only going to be better if you let people be creative with you and let people give you their ideas. And and you can say no. I mean, that's like like 99% of directing is saying yes and no is to other people's like, creative ideas and just molding it. And, and so I think that I, I just... I think at first I wanted to be that control freak. And then the more I played and the more I let go, the more I'm like, no, this is getting only better. And that's kind of towards the end of my education and, and post-college was like, I, f I don't want it to be me. I want it to be the story. Everything should serve the story. Uh, the, the lighting should serve, like every, like a camera movement should only serve the story. It shouldn't be, because this is a cool shot. And you see movies where you're like, well, they wanted to do a cool shot, but this is ruining the rest of the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. There are times when style really sort of corrupts the, the film itself. Mm -hmm. But there are other times yeah, like, when style is everything, yeah. and it's fine. Like the Wachowskis like, are all style, and it works for them, and it's awesome. Yeah. but I, Yeah, and it doesn't feel like theirs. Like, I could even, like... The Matrix feels different than why is Speed Racer the only thing coming yeah. into my but they they different they feel different like the they have a theme to the kind of world that they're building for each different story that they tell yeah yeah they're very it's not necessarily that they have a style but they're very good at building these kinetic uh, visually intense worlds and that's what they yes. do but they do it in service of the thing that they're doing because yes the Matrix and Speed Racer and uh, Oh shit! Come on, yeah, that's uh, all. Pluto that's all they've done. Jupiter ascending. <laughs> uh, yes, but but everything, like, it's basically like this is. They were the only ones crazy enough to do this, but each experience is very different. Yes, I agree with that completely. And like, I I don't want to shit on Wes Anderson a lot. I do like when I when like <laughs> I, unfortunately because but. Bottle Rocket and and Rushmore and like the Royal Tenenbaums are some of the greatest movies ever made. And then he becomes more involved in his style than the story that he's trying to tell. In my opinion, I, I completely like somebody could tell me differently, and I, I could say yes, you like what you're seeing is right. But like when I saw um, what was the one with the the hotel? Um, 
oh my gosh, we just did a commentary on Life Aquatic and talked about uh, Hotel Grand um, Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes. But yeah, like I'm like this is so empty. It's so like it, it like yeah. Like his characters are cartoons of themselves now because he's become so wrapped up in his own aesthetic, and like and. and but I do feel like. Uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs are wonderful. I actually loved Isle of Dogs. I did. I forgot about that one. Because, uh, and I think it was it was him stepping out of himself. Yes, it was still him. It was still his Arturness. But I think he he was he yeah it was it was just different, a little bit different. And I think yeah, I actually enjoyed Isle of Dogs. He uh, I, I I love how strong his style is, and I love his sense of vision. But at the same time. His stuff it very much opens itself up to mockery. I feel right, and I think that's why like everybody like Sarah at Live and and Honest Trailers have all done like parodies of his work, and that's they've kind of become parodies of themselves, unfortunately. And I think he has genius within him. I just wish he would explore it, like kind of. And that's why I actually love directors when they're confined. I love like one of Lynch's my favorite movie by David Lynch's uh, Straight Story, and that's a rated G Disney movie that he directed, like because they couldn't find another director to do it, and it's so him. David Lynch is all over that movie, but it's so brilliant because he's so confined and he's like bursting out of the cracks instead of let let loose and it, anarchy on the screen. Well, I th- I think uh, the the biggest creative geniuses benefit from a strong guiding hand what yo yes i agree i i I like it's great to see somebody just you know vomit their brilliance all over the screen (laughs) but it's also great for them to have somebody telling them okay this part's really cool but maybe pull it back in over here because nobody is going to understand what the heck you're trying to say yeah, and that's like it, I think a, a perfect example is the first season of Twin or first two seasons, the original Twin Peaks versus the new Twin Peaks, is like he had to make something for broadcast television, uh, yes. for a a audience of like it wasn't the the saturation we have now. It was for all of America had to want to watch this, and then Showtime's like, oh, do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, and 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 he did, and it was I in my opinion a mess. I. I I think it was just it was his ego like all over the screen and him going a million different ways and he finally had enough money to do what he wanted and it was just uh, yeah it was just kind of a mess in my opinion again I've I've been uh hot and cold with Lynch over the years I love Blue Velvet um that was the first yeah. first movie of his I saw uh I watched a little Twin Peaks when it was actually on TV and at the time was very heavily into my weird for the sake of being weird phase, which lasted right, yeah. longer. Oh, yeah, we all uh, right, right, right. Which lasted <laughs> longer than I care to admit. Uh, and and since then, like once it hit Netflix or whatever, I was like, oh man, I need to actually go back and watch the whole thing again because it was so cool and so crazy. And I've tried, and it's oh man, I, I just find it tedious now. And, and it's it's me. It's not it. It's me. But it's just uh, even even made for network TV. Not so much. But I can still go back, and I, I thoroughly enjoy Mulholland Drive. 
And yeah, that is another great one. And this is so. I did you have? Uh, do you have like older siblings at all? Uh, no, I don't. Siblings, I've, I've, I've got a. Uh, I have, I have, oh, oh, sorry. So you you had the the nice like gateway helpers. Well, they were okay. So this is me and my. I have two older brothers, and we're all five years apart. So my oldest brother is ten years older than me. Oh wow! And my middle brother is five years. Yeah. So. Uh, and so I, but of course I wanted to be them. I wanted, I was like, I got into metal cause my older brother called me Lemmy. Like that was my nickname as a kid. And so I just wanted to, my older brothers were so cool, but they, my oldest brother dealt with me cause he was in college by the time, like he was out of the house by the time yeah, like, yeah. I was, but my middle brother, I was, just, I was a brat. I obviously was, but he, and so he kept his bedroom door locked, but of course I would pick the lock <laughs> and go in and he would rent, he rented Twin Peaks from uh tower records when they had rentals and he was dubbing it from one vcr to the other so he had a copy and so Uh. i broke into his room he wasn't home but he was dubbing it i'm like why is he dubbing a soap opera and i'm like but it's gotta be cool and so like i sat down i'm like this is the weirdest thing i've ever seen in my life and i happened to have stolen his copy of eraserhead around the same time didn't realize it was even connected but he was going through his lynch phase and so i saw eraserhead when i was like probably around 14 or 15 and it just changed my life i'm like it was the first movie where i'm like this this can't exist like how does this world how am i watching this world this world doesn't exist and it was like the first time where i realized movies can create an entirely different world and it was just insane like it it just i mean and that's when i i mean it was a racer that made me go to film school uh, and so, uh, yeah, I have him to thank for that, even though he's probably still mad at me for breaking into his room. <laughs> yeah, I had my early lynching. My, uh, let's see, I don't know how old I would have been, but gosh, I might have been like eight or nine. But wow, we were staying with uh, some friends of my parents. And they went out and left me with their son, who was older. So he 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 didn't want to have anything to do with me. He went off in his room and was listening to music <laughs> or whatever. And I I was out in their living room, and the Elephant Man was on. Oh. So at a very young age, saw the Elephant Man, which is, you know, a, a, about as mainstream as Lynch gets probably aside from this disney thing that you've brought Mm -hmm. up that i totally didn't know about and have to look into now um (laughs) but but you know fairly straightforward movie but visually it is still very much david lynch very uh tragic but as as a kid i didn't pick up on the the tragedy of it i just picked up on this monstrous guy uh and it freaked me out and it's funny because uh, later, I would see Blue Velvet and have no idea it was even related. You know, I, at that point, I was not paying attention to directors in the same way that I, I exactly, would yeah. once I got into my later teens. Uh, so I saw Blue Velvet and just thought it was this weird movie, but I was into crime stuff at the time. So, like, Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. I think I watched right around the same time as, like, Reservoir Dogs and, like, the 90s crime thing that kind of happened. Yeah, so, yeah. So rather than it being a, a weird cult movie, it was one of those crime movies that just happened to be weird. <laughs> uh, and I love Dennis Hopper. I already loved Dennis Hopper by the time I saw Blue Velvet. So, that, like, matter of fact, that, okay, was, yeah. that was probably the reason I watched the movie. Um, but then, for me, the movie that really, like, fucked me up and made me... <laughs> 
like aware that movies could be these sort of deviant powerful things uh was tetsuo the iron man i have never seen that uh i i I will be honest don't (laughs) it to this day i'm disturbed by the imagery of that movie it, it wow! Is, I mean, I know the title. It's I, I, I. It seems like it's always wrapped up with like Ichi the Ichi the Killer. Is it like that? Uh, it, the, that kind of. It's well, I don't. I don't even know what you would. It's almost like sort of a live action Akira a bit. Uh, it's, okay. It's okay. Very lo-fi. It's all black and white, and it is. It, to me, it's the pinnacle of body horror. I, I've oh, okay to this day. I have never seen anything like as spiritually traumatizing <laughs> as wow. that movie. You're telling me not to see it, but you're just like right, 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 right now. That makes me want to well, that's it. the thing is, I cannot, in good conscience, tell anybody that they need to watch it. But I do have to convey just how singular it is. So I'm sure anybody I talk to immediately oh, okay. is like, "All right, I'm going to track this down." But I'm telling you, when it's over, you're going to have to go take a few showers. I mean, it it is wow. messed yeah, I, up. Like I went through my horror phase when I was like, uh, with, I think every teenage boy does, and I just like because, and then there's some people like sticks with and and like really love the, and I I still like a good horror movie, but I'm not, I, it's not a, a genre that I still follow. But like for some reason, I got really into Puppet Master. Like that was my, oh yeah, yeah, my like movies of choice when I was in my horror phase, and I still, I still, I think I own the collection now, but uh, just for kind of nostalgia, but. Uh, but yeah, horror never like stuck with me. I don't after I, I kind of moved on from it. I don't know that I even describe it as horror. It's it's definitely more of a cyberpunk. <laughs> I mean, it's it's horrifying, really. But I wouldn't necessarily put it in the horror genre. I, I don't. Okay. I don't know what I would qualify it as, other than just disturbing. Okay. Okay. So now, now that we're talking cyber things, uh, how, how did you end up writing online? Yeah, I uh, mostly I somebody sent me a hard times article uh, before I knew that they existed, and he, he like he, I think he posted on my Facebook and just thought it was funny and thought like I would relate to it, and I like I'm like that's really funny, and I'm like I've never heard of the hard times, and so I'm like oh they're like the Onion, but they're not as big as the Onion, so they probably like need people, and little did I know that they were already garnering like this huge following. I just hadn't heard of them yet. And so I emailed the, and I, I was like, I was in a day job. I'm st- like, <laughs> still a job that I still have. I shouldn't say I hate it. I actually kind of like my job, but I, it, I mean, it's a, it's a day job. Right, right. And I was just in a bad place. And I'm like, I will do anything now to be creative. And I didn't. And so I'm like, I emailed the, I didn't even look at their website because their website says like how to submit. And I didn't even look at that. I just emailed the first email I could find for them, which is Matt Sankum, who started the website. And I'm like, hey, I really like your articles. Like, I, I, I poured through their website after I saw the first one. I like the the one that was sent to me. And I'm like, oh, it's really funny. Like, I'd love to to get a chance to submit to you guys one time. And he said, send us ten article ten article headlines. And I can't remember. I think they have you write one of them, like the full article, to see what your writing style is right, like. Right. And so. Um, I sent him 10 articles and like literally like I think I I was at work when I did it and I like he got the email from him did 10 article headlines right then and sent it to him either that like later that day or the next morning and then uh he got back to me and he's like we really like this one and that's uh, what I found out now is is with the hard times is 
uh, you send them 10 headlines. If they like some of them, they post them for the other freelancers to read. And we, we vote on them as well and say, like, this is actually really good. You should contact this person. Oh, some, nice. Matt, Matt and Bill will both admit, like, they don't know everything about comedy uh, and, and everything about, like, very specific niche genres and stuff like that. And so they'll post some. And if people really like them, then they get added to the group. So there's actually, like, 400 people who write for The Hard Times. I'd say only about 100 actively pitch. That's really smart, uh, though, because, I mean, that that's one of the one of the best things about leadership is knowing, like, where your weaknesses are and, and how to have other people sort of f- uh, fulfill them, I guess. Exactly. And they're, they're actually very good at that. And they're also good at saying, like, no, we got this, like, right, kind of right. being the final the final line of it and uh and so yeah and they're because they they're 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 they started with punk and they kind of grew out of the punk scene and so like metal is not really what they know and so me and a couple other guys are kind of like the the metal guys and so if if they kind of have questions about it they'll come to us and ask us if what did it like what do you guys think about this and stuff like that for specific bands that they might not realize so they're insanely open about their business and how they run it and how they want things to flow and i think that's what's made them so successful that's cool yeah they they've it's it's been amazing over the past few years watching them gain ground and and really increase their presence uh which now you will be doing thanks to the release (laughs) of lingeria i got that right right yeah well there's there's a running joke in the book that nobody knows how to pronounce it because it's a because they're all reading Lingeri. the books. Exactly. Legere is the name of a book series within this book. Right, right, right. And uh, and I, I, it was actually a joke that I realized that I hadn't said it out loud while I wrote it. Because I, I actually didn't tell anybody except for my wife that I was writing it. Because I was like, if this fails, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to tell people I have a failed book out there. Like, or like, if I, if I quit, because I quit a lot of things. Right, and right. so I'm like, no, I'm just going to kind of keep my head down. I, I told a couple people who I like wanted to read chapters, but really my wife was the only one who knew I was doing it. And then when I started kind of putting it around, I'm like, I've never said this word out loud. And then I, I'm like, that's <laughs> funny because then I realized that people in the book wouldn't have never said it out loud. And so that's kind of a running gag that everybody pronounces it differently. Oh, that's tremendous. I love it. Yeah, I got I got a few pages in, but I've been I, I think I got it from you Saturday or Sunday maybe. Yeah, I'm sorry. I thought I sent it to you earlier, but I, I unfortunately did not. So well, thank you, you had, for trying to. You had mentioned sending it to me, but I've been, like I said, schedule's been insane. Just Monday right. night, I got to pretend I was Andre the Giant, which was pretty awesome. So I just, I haven't had time, but I'm looking forward because I got a few pages in and I was like, all right, I'm actually going to have to devote time to this and not just skim it over. <laughs> so tell, give us, uh, give us the pitch. What is the elevator pitch? Uh, because I've got kind of a sense of it, but I want to I want to hear your uh, your description. Sure. It is a humorous fantasy novel that starts off with a suicide attempt. Uh, it is basically if George R. R. Martin was sucked into the world of Westeros, and everybody thought that the books that he had written were the Bible, and he was their god and creator. And so the the main character, uh, uh, why I, I can't remember my name character, my main character's name right now. It's been a long day, uh, Norman. <laughs> Uh, it's he uh, I basis off of actually L. Frank Baum, who got really fed up with having to write Oz books. Uh, and I love the Oz books, and I read that he he wanted to write other things, and everybody's like, nope, this is what you're famous for. This is what you got to do. And 
I'm like, well, what if he had like, so what if he had to go to Oz and like was sick of this world and, and these, these characters were waiting for him. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. It was originally going to be a cartoon and it just wasn't working. I was kind of doing like an adult swim kind of uh, ugly Americans idea. And I just, I couldn't put it together. And it was actually, my wife was like, I really like your scene descriptions in your screenplays. Like you should just try and do something with that. And so I kind of had this idea and I'm like, well, maybe I should try and write a funny book. And that's kind of where it came from was kind of all these things coalescing together. And so uh, Norman is, is depressed uh, and he's about to, to gas himself in his oven when a portal to Ligeria opens up and uh, one of his main characters is on the other side. And somehow his books, four of, of the 16 of his books have made it to Ligeria somehow and they, they're the Lingerian Bible, and they believe him to be the author. They call him the author, but it's basically God. And so they worship him as a god in this world. Yeah, that's it's funny you mentioned the scene descriptions, because from the the opening with the the way that you described the room of doors, uh, I was immediately like, I can see this. I love this idea. I love that he's out of space and dude's just nailing it to the floor at this point. Uh, I, I, you, you, your visual style, and, and actually, you were talking about earlier the visualizing the scenes and giving a lot of detail in your screenplays. Uh, I, I definitely would like to see a world come to life. Although it's, it, like I said, uh, picturing it is very easy. Oh, thank you. I, I actually appreciate that. I wanted to be. I like. I don't like dense books because I have a hard time focusing. Like I've said a thousand times, as I'm jittering about here. <laughs> Uh, and so I want, I like, I wanted a book that people get, and that's my, my favorite reviews on, on Amazon right now are people saying it's a light read. It's, it's a very easy, fun read. And I like, I love that. I love books that you just kind of breeze through and you're like, yeah. that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really what I was going for. And I had a lot of fun writing it. I feel like it kind of comes through that I was just kind of enjoying myself while I was, I was like, oh, this would be a fun idea. And I just kind of like wandered down this path for a chapter. And, and so, uh. So yeah, I'm glad. I'm actually thank you very much. I'm glad you you liked it. Well, where? Yeah, excuse me. I, I just was trying to take a sip of water and think and talk at the <laughs> same time, and it did not work out for me. Uh, where can we find it, and how do we follow what's going on with it? Sure, uh, you can find it on Amazon. That's the only place to get it right now. I'll, I think I'll be doing some cons. I hope to sell uh, paperbacks. I'm still kind of figuring this world out. I don't, I, I don't know, like, sell, like renting tables and all this other stuff. I'm still figuring this out. But uh, right now, Amazon, uh, if you search for Lingeria, L-I-N-G-E-R-I-A, I would write book afterwards because Lingeria <laughs> is a different way to spell lingerie, <laughs> uh, which is the reason that's I got the name from a Russian spam email that I got that was selling sexy Ligeria. And I'm like, that's a, that sounds like a world. And so, uh, but I didn't think it all the way through that when people search for it, they're going to get pictures of women in lingerie. So Ligeria book uh, is the best way to find it on Amazon. And then I am on the social media platforms, K zero Z U H. Uh, and uh, Ligeria has an Instagram account. That's Ligeria book uh, that you can look up as well. Very cool. Uh, before we wrap this thing up, is there anything else you wanted to throw out there? Anything else you wanted to put over, mention, uh, or just what what are you up to right now? Just hawking the book. That's uh, what I've focused on. I, I, I have started another one 
Uh, not I, There is a Lingeria book two of one that I have an idea for, but I've actually started working on a different book. Uh, uh, but uh, that's a long way away right now. I'm just talking my book and writing for the hard times, and uh, that's about all I got on the burner right now. I, I already love the idea of book two of one. That's great. Now you have to do it because that's too good. Oh, it's our, the idea is there. It's just it's percolating right now. I got to figure out what I'm going to do with it. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I look forward to finishing the book, and I uh, also look forward to reading more Hard Times articles from you. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. I really I love your podcast. I, you're a fantastic interviewer. So this is really easy, actually. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I am hoping to talk to Dan again soon, and I got to tell you. I think there's probably a podcast about Micro Machines to be had, especially with the announcement that Hasbro is now working with Wicked Cool Toys to bring Micro Machines back to the market. That's right, breaking news right here on the Needless Things podcast. Micro Machines will be coming back to stores near you sometime very soon. That's pretty awesome, right? Uh, I hope we see the, the licensed ones again. I wish... I still had all those James Bond micro-machines. Anyway, uh, that was Dan. He's awesome. Uh, please go check out all his social media and uh, go check out Lingeria. And also, go to NeedlessThings underscore on uh, Twitter. You can probably just look up Needless Things Podcast and uh, just tweet hashtag Phantom Snow Stories. And we will pick a winner live on next week's show. Or I guess live as we record next week's show. Uh, Mr. Bobby Nash himself will be here to choose the winner. And we'll, we'll make a little game out of it. I'll have some fun with Bobby. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Uh, big things are coming up very soon. I cannot yet announce the thing that is happening on July the 14th. I will just tell you, mark July the 14th on your Needless Things calendar. It is going to be momentous, and I mean that. Not like 200th episode momentous, but definitely a, uh, a big, big feather in the cap of the Needless Things family. And uh, a big surprise is going to be there. It's, it's going to be awesome, and I can't wait to announce it uh, to the public. Uh, also, I will be in Wilmington, North Carolina at the end of June, and I'm going to take care of this whole Swamp Thing business. I'm going to get that show back on the air and uh, also hopefully do some interviews with our pals at Memory Lane Comics. And uh, there you go. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. Love you. Mean it. Uh-huh.